1: If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. We have to look closer at this. Uh, that gun
2: was from the safe in your house. You know, I've loved Marty since I was young, and I would never have hurt Marty. Oh.
3: No. No, Welcome to Betrayal. I'm your host, Darren Karp. On this episode, we look into a betrayal that crosses family lines in the most unsettling of ways and even includes unbelievable testimony from someone or something that will leave you speechless. It certainly left me speechless. We're going to definitely get into it. And this case is so disturbing that I had to call in one of my closest partners in crime. Truly, he's a true crime podcasting and TV veteran, including the co-host of my other true crime podcast, Shaken and Disturbed. He's a digital producer and actually one of my best friends. I consider him family. It's none other than John Thrasher. Johnny boy, how you doing?
0: Aww. I'm great. Thanks. What a sweet little thing to say about me right at the top of the show.
3: Well, what can I say? We've done hundreds of episodes together, and this yeah. one's a little bit complicated, so I just needed your true crime eye with me. Absolutely. And I'm curious to see if the way that we look at this case is going to be different, as sometimes mm-hmm. they do. So I value your opinion here. Let's get into this week's episode. Today's story starts with a woman named Glenna Johnson. She's a sweet-natured soul from the Native American Ojibwa tribe based in Michigan. And then there's Marty Durham, a local guy with a notable sense of humor, a passion for hunting. Marty and his cousin, Scott Fallon, both have passion for the outdoors and hunting, and both were middle children, which sort of led them to bond even further, since they were too old for some things and too young for others. You know, very, very Marsha, Marsha, Marsha <laughs> type of stuff, you know? Yeah, Marty and Glenna got together in the early 1980s in Grand Rapids, Michigan. They met when they were teenagers and hung out with a lot of the same people in the neighborhood growing up. You know, it's young love, as people say. They're both in their teens here. So they kind of split. Uh, They have a little tryst and they split. You know, a lot of times when you're young, it just kind of happens. Sure. But eventually, 17-year-old Glenna, that's right, 17, marries Mm. Bob Norman, who was five years older, so 22 at the time. Mm. And meanwhile, Marty wins the heart of another teenager, Christina. So Glenna and Marty are now in their separate, different relationships with their own significant others at this point. Right. Christina says it was love at first sight with Marty, and the two got hitched in 1991 very quickly. At 17, she had her first kid, and then she had two
2: more at age 19. Apparently, it was love at first sight for him because he was very drawn to me. Marty and I got married in 1991. It was quick. It was fast. It was fun in the beginning. And at the time,
3: Glenna was building her family as well. She was a stay-at-home mom and devoted her life to raising them. Bob seemed to be more like a father figure to Glenna than a husband, just because of the age gap, you know, according to close friends and family. You know, five years doesn't seem like a lot when you're maybe 35 and 40. But when you're 17 and 22 or 19 and 24, that's like a different place in your life, right, John?
0: Absolutely. And I mean, the age difference here, I will say this. One of the things that worries me right at the top of, of our research over the years is if there's ever something where he was like a father figure, she was like mm. a mother figure, that's usually a beginning of doesn't a red say flag. Sexy.
3: No, it doesn't say sexy. No, I
0: wouldn't say so. No. But
3: it's also, I think, to your point, maybe a little bit of a power dynamic there. You know what I mean? Like sure, If someone's yeah. a father figure, you're not on an evil, even playing field here. Yeah, so. I think you're right. We'll see how it plays out, but Marty liked to fish and hunt more than he liked working, but finally got a job at, a st- at Steelcase, which made Christina very happy. So they're both kind of living their lives here, Marty and Glenna, separately uh, from each other. Now, 10 days after Marty gets his job, the police come knocking at Christina's door at 3 in the morning, which changes everything forever. And here's mm. how uh, these kind of play out. Marty's cousin Scott recalls the tragic details.
1: Marty was coming home from work. And uh, as he was going through an intersection, another gentleman driving a large truck ran the red light. Doing over 60, Marty was driving a small vehicle. The truck pretty much ran just about over the top of the vehicle. And it crushed Marty inside.
3: Now, according to Scott, Marty was clinically dead for five minutes. This is (sighs) a... Listen. This truck is crushing him. The fact that he was not just DOA, but only for five minutes, is really surprising here. But this can happen. You can revive someone back after your heart stopping. Right? This is not.
0: Yeah. I mean, listen. Crazy. One of the things I love is going on YouTube and like learning about these people who. Thank God we're able to survive tragic accidents like this, but are considered, quote unquote, clinically dead for a certain amount of time, because there's a lot of spirituality that happens. And, you know, the big bright light in the sky. I find it all very fascinating. But thankfully, he recovered and did not die in this horrible, tragic accident. Yeah.
3: But listen to his injuries, okay? So Marty suffered a closed head frontal lobe brain injury, which obviously means it didn't. It was internal. Shattered his pelvis, literally splitting his jaw in half. Pushed his intestines up through his diaphragm. So essentially he's like throwing up his own stomach. He lost his spleen, two punctured lungs, some bruises on his heart, and was in a coma for weeks. this, This would kill any normal person. Yeah. And they all... They all had a feeling of relief when Marty came out of the coma, but not knowing what the effects were to be when he woke up. It turns out once Marty did wake up from this coma, he was a completely different person. He didn't even remember almost his entire life. Just a couple pieces, which isn't overly shocking considering the trauma that he had experienced. Yeah. Unfortunately, he didn't even remember his wife, Christina, asking his cousin Scott if she really was his wife. Oh my God. So clearly he knew who Scott was. There was a trust there. So he didn't forget everything. Yeah. Christina spoke publicly about this moment and how hard it was for her.
2: Oh God, when Marty didn't remember me, it was heartbreaking. Everything just went upside down. It was never the same after that. It was terrible.
3: You know, John, I actually can't really imagine the kind of emotional stress this puts on family and friends. Kind of this, first this major, just life or death car accident, and then almost complete amnesia to the point of not even remembering your own wife. I mean, the stress of this has to be insane.
0: I mean, my heart goes out to Marty, especially at this point, and, and to his family, that, you know, this has to be traumatic in and of itself. And we're not, we are not—we haven't even gotten to the craziest part of this story yet. No,
3: yeah, and friends and family describe Marty as having mentally changed who he was, and that his personality became more controlling, more dark, mm. a little bit more sinister. Yeah. The changes were enough for Christina to feel very differently about Marty.
2: I guess you could say he lost a lot of his filter. His humor, his, um, his attitude became really dark. Marty was not the man that I married. I believe I fell out of love with Marty after the accident. I decided to end things and get a divorce.
3: I will say, as tough as it is... You know christina has to live her life too i could sort of see there being a reasonable reason to get divorced just given the mental health issues and given marty's changing attitude what do you think
0: i mean i completely agree and one of the things you and i talk about from time to time on uh shaken and disturbed our other show is the effects and awareness of mental health in current society versus even the 90s i mean this was 1996 I'm not sure that, you know, mental health resources and awareness were anywhere near what they are now. I think if I'm Christina looking at my relationship, re- realizing that he's gone through some of the most extreme trauma a person can go through physically and, and mentally as well, you know, I think nowadays, she, maybe she would look at it differently. Maybe she would say, let's go to therapy. Let's let's have a actual doctor diagnose the kind of changes that are happening in your brain chemistry.
3: Yeah, that's not usually a personality I think people want to gravitate towards. But you know, they have children together. And so I imagine this is just very difficult for their family. Either way, life was about to change in a major way for Mm. both Marty and Christina. So after his divorce from Christina, Marty uses the insurance settlement from his car accident, plus money from a bank loan, and buys his first house. He starts a new life with two of his kids, Justin and Jason, and his pet African gray parrot named Bud, Hmm. which I kind of like because I was thinking about this. Like, that's a great name for an animal because you'd be like, hey, Bud. Hey, buddy. Hey,
0: bud. Hey, buddy. What's going on, bud? Hey, bud. (laughs) How you feeling today, bud?
3: Which, by the way, I never really understood. Don't at me with this, but I never understood (laughs) birds as pets because you can't really pet them.
0: That's a tough one for me, too, but there are a lot of people that have them, so I don't know.
3: But if you can't pet a pet, is it a pet? Interesting theory. That's a great question.
0: Another time, another show. Yeah. That's
3: another podcast. Yeah, right. But, uh, well, as fate would have it, this new beginning kind of rekindles an old flame. One day, Marty meets back up with Glenna, who just so happens to be divorcing her husband, Bob, at the time as well. If we remember, Hmm. Bob was sort of a, a father figure, less a husband figure to Glenna. So maybe they were going through kind of similar issues and stuff like that. And sure enough, this situation proved convenient for both Marty and Glenna, and they start their relationship back up
0: again interesting you don't really hear about this too often to be honest
3: you don't but you know i would kind of like well because a lot of times you know you move away you get other yeah, right. relationships you realize it was young love but now they kind of seem to be you know it's not young anymore you know they both are kind of they have children they're adults yeah. now you know they they're more sure of themselves they've got that that young love feeling again Absolutely. and eventually the two take a leap of faith and they get married Glenna's daughter gets a call to meet at the courthouse and watch them get married, and they're both thrilled to finally get married and consider each other best friends. In fact, to celebrate, Glenna gets a tattoo that says property of Master D right on her back shoulder. Now, I know that a lot of people like calling me Master D, but I am not that. (laughs) It is not me. Um, Did you
0: know I have a tattoo that says property of Master D and it's a reference to you? I don't know if you knew that.
3: It should. I can't tell you. I can't tell the audience where that tattoo is placed uh, for your own safety. I don't want I don't want people to start looking into those dark corners. But this
0: is not an X rated podcast. Correct.
3: Well, while (laughs) things seemed happy and routine for the young couple at this point, the marriage is about to face some major tests. Another detail about this marriage is that Glenna was also getting paid nearly $40,000 a year to be hmm. Marty's full-time caretaker. So this is just kind of another thing to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah. And for sure. it probably sounds like she probably needed it because he was he had a lot of appointments to go to, a lot of medication there. So it's not this isn't like $40,000 of waste. You know, this it, being a caretaker is very very difficult.
0: Absolutely. It is a full-time job. I mean, I can barely take care of myself full-time, you know, in a year's time, so.
3: Well, that's why you had to become property of me property in order for me D. to that's it. take care of you. That's right. And Marty is controlling <laughs> as well to the point where he tells Glenna how to dress, how to wear her hair, and anything mm. else to make to, to make her to be exactly how he wants He's being obsessive, uh, to say the least, with needing to know where she's going, for how long, with whom. And Glenna really isn't able to do much without Marty kind of watching the clock and timing her on this, which I don't know if any of you out there have ever been in this type of relationship, but this is very abusive, very manipulative. And it's very hard to kind of see because sometimes people, I think, take it as like, well, I just care about you. But it really isn't. Yeah. It's controlling within them.
0: Well, and I can also say, I don't know the extent of Marty's uh disabilities here, you know, obviously he's got a lot going on, but one of the things I've noticed with certain family members and even friends and their family members is when you have someone who goes from being quote unquote neurotypical to being completely full-time dependent on another person, that creates a lot of insecurities about their independence and what they can do and what they can't do. So this could be, I'm just speculating here, this could be Marty projecting that um his inability to have his own autonomy here and he's he may be worried what is Glenna doing with my money or with my medication or with anything involved with me and it comes out in a strong, forceful way. I'm not defending him by any way, by any means, but I am just considering that I've seen this happen with people that have disabilities as well.
3: That's a really, that's a really good point. I mean, even people who don't necessarily have disabilities, but are just older, you know, so when you take someone's freedom away or you feel like nothing is yours, I imagine that it's easy to kind of feel possessive and try and take as much as you can or control something in your right. life when you can't control anything else. So really good point, John. The tension under this roof in this house is just palpable. hmm Connie, a neighbor living nearby, stops by to check on the couple who she hasn't seen or heard from in a while. And when Connie goes to visit, there's no sign of anyone. The doors are locked. The windows are closed. Connie tries again the following day. And after checking three different times, the third time was the charm. Now the front door is unlocked. And when Mm. she enters, she hears a dog barking in a nearby room. And what she discovers next shocks her. The dog is in the bedroom where she finds both Marty and Glenna with blood everywhere. Oh, my God. The police finally arrive and steal off the crime scene for further investigation. There's no sign of a home invasion, no sign of a break-in. Obviously, it didn't seem like a stranger is just going to come in and shoot them in cold blood. There's no sign of forced entry. But the weird thing here for me is that law enforcement had been on the scene in Glenna and Marty's place for 50 minutes Or maybe even a little bit more, but nobody thought to check the pulse of Glenna. So after about an hour into the investigation, they do check the pulse of Glenna and it turns out she's alive. This is my worst nightmare, John. This is my my worst
0: nightmare. I mean, I, you know, you hear about these moments in like ancient history or like, during the bubonic plague where like they assume people are dead and so they like put them on a gurney and they or, take like, them to their grave site yeah and then they bury them and then it's like guys they get up hey guys over here i'm actually um oh, i'm alive and i'm like right i was just how napping. Does this happen yeah i was napping I mean- yeah
3: Obviously, you know, this is a gruesome scene. It's not like I don't think the law enforcement are, are incapable here. It just probably was assumed that they're lying in pools of blood, not yeah. moving. You know, I think that's kind of a natural assumption, although I would hope that they would kind of double-check their work. And the EMS is called in to get Glenna to an ambulance. At the hospital, she's treated by a neurosurgeon and has a gunshot wound to her head. Wow. Back at the crime scene, they find a crucial piece of evidence A Ruger single-six revolver is found underneath the love seat in the living room. And the gun belongs to the father of Marty, as well as other guns in the gun safe. And at the crime scene, uh, as the evidence is sort of being processed, the officers take in the Durham family for questioning, including Marty's oldest son, Justin. Justin tells investigators he recalls Marty and Glenna fighting and bickering, but nothing ever too serious, but... He does bring up that they had painkillers and someone knew about the pills and wanted them. Glenna's brother Todd recalls this because Marty was on pain pills.
2: The opiate problem in Michigan, it's quite bad. I believe Marty and Glenna started dealing prescription pills to subsidize their income a little bit. Marty was able to take a minimal amount of his pain pills and then everything else he would sell.
3: You know, this is a really sad reality, not just in Michigan, but so many places Mm -hmm. in the United States these days, you know, kind of opioid abuse um, in in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. And not only that, you know, this was somewhat of a small town. So I just this was obviously in the 90s. But, you know, listen, not a lot has changed, frankly, when it comes to small towns, the opioid uh, epidemic has if anything blossomed and and exponentially grown, so I just think about that as well. I come from a very small town in Maryland, and I know the opioid epidemic has really hit my small town hard, so there is a sense of sort of um sympathy I think I have for these small towns that, for better or worse, are trying to make the best of their lives, and sometimes the only way that people can do that is you know opioids, frankly, and selling them and distributing them and whatever else you can do with them.
3: Well, especially Marty, for example, he was making anywhere between $2,000 and $4,000 a bottle. Mm. So, you know, there's strong incentive money-wise, I think, why people do this. In fact, his cousin Scott warns him to be careful because strangers would go to their house to pick up the pills, which of course creates a dangerous scenario of just letting people in their house. And investigators talking to Justin realize that Because the door of the house wasn't kicked in, there didn't seem to be a sign of forced entry, the murderer was very likely someone that Marty knew. That's a fair point. I mean,
0: yeah, that's just basic crime scene 101, right?
3: Justin also reveals that at one point in the past, they were getting into fights because someone had owed Glennum money. Mm. But even more shocking details emerge about the murder. The night of the incident, the police had given Marty's kids permission to enter the house to retrieve the pet bird, Bud, who we talked about earlier, who we mentioned, uh, and any valuables inside the house. Okay, this is important. Marty's daughter, Jessica, says that when she arrived at the house, it was cold. The living room was torn apart. Couches were ripped open. There was just stuffing everywhere. The house also stunk like blood, which Ugh. is Ugh. very unsettling and disturbing to me. There's
0: Just, a lot of, yeah, a lot of these it's details. It's kind of making me
3: gag a little
0: bit. It's horrible. <laughs> I know, isn't it? Take a, take a break there, Darren, while I, I want to mention something. I found it very interesting that the night of the incident... The police are giving access to the home to the kids. Now, the only reason I'm saying this, and I'm, this is no judgment at all towards anyone in, involved in the investigation, but have they roped off the crime scene? Did they get all of the evidence that they wanted? To me, this was a little bit of like, is there evidence tampering happening here? Like, wouldn't they want to wait until their investigation before they let people in to just do whatever they want in the house?
3: Well, and maybe, you know, even though the police are sort of letting them in and and to enter the house to get the pet bird. It, and and perhaps, you know, maybe Bud would only respond to family members. It does right. seem a little weird. You would think that there would be a police officer kind of going with them I would hope to so, eye yeah. any potential evidence that maybe the kids couldn't eye. And I imagine it would be very hard to walk into that room by themselves yeah. anyway.
0: Right. Good well, point. Well, at,
3: at, at this point, the kids rummage through the house to find anything that could be used for evidence. Jessica, one of Marty's kids, finds a bunch of papers on the floor, including a manila envelope with Glenna's handwriting. In the envelope were three notes written by Glennon to her children saying she is sorry, but she can't do it anymore.
1: Selling a little or a lot?
3: One letter read, quote, I'm sorry, but I love you. And I'm so sorry. I've been a disappointment to you these last 12 years or so. Please forgive me. You're one of the best things I ever did. Love, mom. Now, obviously, everyone in Glenna's world is assuming like you guys are, like you are, John, that considering these notes, suicide notes, I mean, that seems exactly what a typical suicide note would probably look like. And Marty's kids immediately hand the notes over to investigators in hopes that they can help make sense of this case
0: assuming they were kind of tucked away somewhere in an envelope i'm I'm not sure i would even categorize these as suicide notes i mean it certainly could be if you really want to dig in but unless you're glenna do you can we really determine that conclusively i'm not sure
3: justin marty's son always had an uncomfortable feeling about glenna telling investigators that her joking murder threats always seemed to go too far
2: Honestly, she would always like say it, and my dad would say it back to her. Like, you could tell my dad was joking when he would say it back. But when she would say it, she would say it so seriously. She just always creeped me out. I always told my family, like, if anything ever happens to my dads, like she did it. Like she's crazy.
3: Basically, at this point, given what we know, given Justin's kind of testimony on this, everyone kind of believes that Glenna had killed their dad, killed Marty, and killed herself.
0: And on top of that, I think we should definitely highlight as well, there is clearly a rift between Marty's kids and Glenna. Even the way Justin's describing Glenna in this and that clip that we just aired, you can sense and understand that they clearly were not on the same page about life. <laughs>
3: Yes. You know, the kids had moved out, you know, out of the house. And let me just say this, too. It's like there could have been a lot of going with this. We don't know enough to know maybe why that rift was there. But listen, Glenn is kind of that new woman, even though she's this old flame, kind of maybe replacing Christina, the mom in a lot of ways. So there could have been a lot of internal family factors that we don't know about yet because sure. we weren't there. So but yes, I think you're right. There is a clear rift.
0: Oh, wow.
3: Now, this could just be coincidence, okay? This could just be that. But as detectives look further into their finances, they find that Glenna also has a gambling addiction, which is why she lost the house behind Mm. Marty's back. And once the autopsy is finished, it's revealed that the bullets in Marty's body and casings found at the scene came from the Ruger pistol found at the crime scene. So the weapon that was found is the weapon that certainly killed Marty.
0: The literal smoking gun, if you will.
3: A literal smoking gun. Police initially think it's a murder-suicide, but with the new evidence, it's found that Glenna shot her husband, wrote suicide notes to her family, and then shot herself twice, which seems very difficult to do unless you would know exactly where the bullet was going to go. Because I imagine even if you're surviving a brain injury, to shoot yourself in the head and then have the wherewithal to shoot yourself in the head again and then put the gun somewhere... Doesn't seem likely to me.
0: And there's even more to this that seems even more awkward as it pertains to the whole, you know, time, the whole time frame, you know, so.
3: right. I mean, and, and like I just said, I mean, after shooting herself, she hides the weapon and lays down next to her husband to die, except she doesn't die. She's found alive. So If this is true, what a botched plan. I mean, Marty was shot four times in a row. And as for Glenna, she appeared to have two small entry wounds near the back of her head. But if Glenna shot Marty in the bedroom and then turned the gun on herself, would she have been capable of hiding the weapon under the loveseat living room with a bullet or possibly two already in her brain? Because clearly she couldn't have placed that beforehand.
0: Right. I mean... you know, again, this is back to crime scene 101. This is ballistics 101. You don't have to be an expert in these fields to understand how this stuff kind of would play out. And this is where I, I was looking at this research and I thought to myself, I'm not so sure that Glenna was the one that shot the gun. Who it is exactly, I don't have an answer for that at this point, but I don't really understand how any of this is possible. And here's the other thing. yeah. When you think about the um, immediate, the first responders who, you know, signaled in to police and everyone, hey, we need an ambulance. These two, bo- these two people are dead on arrival. There didn't really seem to be any confusion until someone took her pulse. So, not only is, she, is did all of this happen in a sequence, but now she's also that great of an actress that she can lay there and appear dead to professionals. To me, that just none of this is really adding up to somebody with a strong motive to murder, personally. You have to ask that question.
3: So now the investigators wait for Glenna to recover in order to begin questioning her, but doctors warn them that she could possibly be brain dead. Mm. While at Marty's funeral, Glenna and her children are taken out of all the pictures and aren't even included on the obituary. Wow. From the first day, Marty's children think that Glenna is responsible for Marty's death. They are adamant about this. But finally, after a month of being in a medically induced coma, Glenna begins to wake up, but her head injuries leave her brain damaged and suffering from memory loss. Mm. And while the detectives wait to interview Glenna, they subpoena her phone records and find that in the morning of May 13th, somebody, using the phone, went to the Ruger website. Now, it's the same gun, if we remember, that was used to kill her husband. Five months later, after Marty's murder, Glenna has recovered enough to be interviewed by police. Okay, sure. I mean, she was in a coma and that takes time to recover. But five months, that is a lot of time. I mean, I I couldn't remember something from five months ago, let alone having a brain injury to remember, you know, what was happening in this, right? This seems like a lot of time.
0: Yeah, and I think my true true crime podcaster hat comes on here and I think to myself— You know, how much of that five months was she actually in the coma? How much of that five months does she have to, you know, bake up a story? You know, if she is the true killer here, that's a lot of time to come up with an alibi and, you know, figure out what was happening and maybe tell a story that, you know, could be more appealing to, you know, the police.
3: Yeah, I mean, I... I I agree with that. Well, they asked what she remembered about the incident, and she says she doesn't remember anything at all except waking up and looking for her husband. Hmm. Glenna got emotional during the questioning, insisting there was no chance she killed her husband because he was all she had.
2: You may not know what happened. Uh, It may not be in your memories anymore, but we have to look closer at this. Uh, That gun was from the safe in your house. In fact, you even looked up on your phone information on the gun that was used. I don't remember any of that. I just know that I woke up looking for my husband.
3: And remember, this woman has a tattoo of his name. I mean, they've gotten back together. They seem like best friends. I mean, I don't know. What do you think, John?
0: I mean, I'll be honest. Hearing that clip, I I actually believe her when I'm hearing this because... Me too. She sounds so convincing. The the moments there where she says, he's all I had. Listen, right. I'll be honest with you. I've been in positions in my life with with romantic partners where I felt that same sense of love and affection and frankly, dependence on another person. And it, and it just really I really connected with the way she was saying that. And frankly, Darren, we've listened to so many questionings over the years, you know, on our shows. And I, you know, having worked on true crime television for as long as I have, I feel like i I have a good ear for that kind of stuff. But, you know, let's see how it plays out. Let's hear more of these details. But I will say that from that clip alone, I really kind of believe her.
3: I do too. And Glenna kind of explains this. Well, she vehemently denies killing her husband, but the letters found in the house sort of tell otherwise in that manila envelope. Glenna says she's always written letters to her kids whenever she gets into a mood and with no other hard evidence against her... The police let her go. Okay. Does your mom do this? Is this like a thing?
0: I was just going to say, you know my mom well enough from all of our conversations. My mom does this. They're not nearly as dark as, you know, some of the details you read earlier, but my mom loves to write letters and she has a journal and there are probably, her journal is probably full of letters to us, her children that we may never see until, you know, way later on in life, but- But I, you know, this was another thing where I'm like, I actually can connect with this because I, and maybe I believe that she truly was, was doing this, you know, maybe she was just being emotional and getting her, her feelings out on paper. More people should probably do that in this world.
3: Yeah. And that's not really, to your point, I mean, this is totally possible that she's just writing letters uh, in a lot of ways. And again, she's putting them in a manila envelope. She's not mailing them out to her kids. So
0: that's a good point.
3: Little suspect here. Well, As time went on, people were worried that no arrest was being made. That is, until about seven months later when the family of Marty Durham says his parrot was home when he was killed, and Bud the parrot couldn't stop talking about it.
0: Oh my God, what? Are you?
3: Yep, yep. Yep.
0: Okay, yep. Let's, let's hear this. That's all I'm going to say. I'm just okay. going to say,
3: yep, yep, yep. Okay? <laughs> Bud the parrot lived with Marty and Glenna, and after the murder, he went to live with Marty's ex-wife, Christina. She would hear Bud scream and squawk in the middle of the night, and it sounded like two different voices, which kind of freaked Christina out. Now, you know, the, the trope of parrots, obviously, is that they can mimic very well. You know, they kind of sure. hear a sound and they can replicate it. So for having two voices, I mean, it's not the parrot's voice. The fact that Christina could understand that, that would that to me would be very interesting.
0: For sure, Now Cr- yeah.
3: Christina decides to record Bud, and after listening back, you could hear Bud in Glenna's voice. Oh, my God. Yelling! I can't believe I'm about to set this clip up because this this one like I peed my pants with this. But here is the actual recording. Okay, Christina, God of Bud, recounting the incident. Listen closely. No, no, don't shoot. So Christina was shook by this. Of Uh. course, recalls the moments she may have made a connection.
2: And then the don't shoot. That's that struck me. I heard it. Don't oh, fucking shoot. And that like ends with "Don't effing shoot," and it just he stops. It's like the last word he says in in the rant. I truly believe Bud was a witness. I know that he definitely seen and heard everything that happened that night.
3: I mean, hearing this bird out of nowhere saying, no, no, don't shoot. You're not picking that up from general vernacular. It's not like saying like, what's up, doc? Hey, how's it going? Like, you're not saying that. So it to me, this blew my mind, John.
0: Well, mine as well. And I will say not to continue on about my extensive true crime career here, but there have probably only been a couple of times where I got chills listening or watching uh, some of this information that we've had when this you just chilling. when you just played that clip and and you can hear the bird saying no no don't shoot my whole my arm was full of goosebumps it was so so crazy and weird to me
3: and you can hear the two different voices it's almost yeah. like marty and glenna speaking so regardless of if a parent speaking can be admissible in court <laughs> after a year of testing minor traces of glenna's dna are found on the ruger pistol which you know, which may to be expected. The gun was in the house. DNA is kind of everywhere. You know, yeah. you enter in. It, it's easy to kind of shed it, if you will. Or maybe now, she even
0: held it at one time. I mean, that, that puts DNA Going on the gun. hunting
3: with Marty, right. Right, right? Even though she's not there, she passed him a gun. It could have sure. stayed on there. And you also have to understand that eight shots were fired in that house. And the gun, remember, is a single six-shot revolver. Oh. That means that whoever fired the shot, would have needed to touch the bullets to reload oh. the final two. So Glenna's DNA was not found on any of the gun casings. So she doesn't have any trace of DNA on these bullets. So it seems very hard to believe that she reloaded the gun and somehow wiped all the bullets right. as she was placing them in the gun and then shooting Marty and herself. Right. Regardless, many months after the murder, is arrested and charged with the murder of her husband, Marty. Wow. While Glenna's family is shocked, Marty's daughter Jessica recalled it being the best day that has happened in over a year. Yet the big question still remains of how does one shoot themselves in the back of the head with a single-action revolver twice, then go to clean up the mess, hide everything, and then lay down next to your deceased husband? And what's the motive here? Their finances over foreclosure? You know, I guess that's possible, but if they're best friends... They're probably talking about this. And why rip up the note just to leave it so someone could potentially find it, John?
0: Yeah. You know, and the thing that I keep coming back to, and we'll get to, I think, this in a second, is the cash that's in that safe. Safe. You know, like, there's just too many, there are too many things, too many puzzle pieces that aren't pointing directly to Glenna needed to uh, murder her husband and herself over a foreclosure. That's not what I'm picking up on here, personally.
3: Well, right, and they were only $5,000 off from it, and so they had a couple yeah. thousand dollars in the safe. In the I safe,
0: mean, yeah, that's a great point.
3: Well, a couple of weeks before the trial, detectives act on the missing cash as well and investigate the children of Marty to find where the money would have gone. Upon that investigation, they find that the sons found the money and took it. Mm. The kids found the money and the letters at the same time, yet only, only handed over the letters. And knowing this, investigators dismiss this possible case of robbery. So the trial begins, and on day one, nearly 60 people were asked to give their account of what took place that night. The prosecution argues that Glenna was hiding financial debt and the fact that their house was up for foreclosure. But key to their theory is that Glenna shot Marty, then shot herself in the head, then hid the gun. (laughs) So that that timeline has to be true in order for them to... In order for the prosecution to win here. That timeline has to be true.
0: Right, and the other thing is, though, I mean, who... If you're really trying to to murder yourself live this way why do you care where the gun is like if you're gonna be Wait, dead why do, you, why do you need to hide the gun
3: why do you care about the consequences
0: yeah right
3: well right and again we're gonna prove this woman's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt there's no reasonable doubt right. here like yeah, i mean yeah. even if nine times even if one out of ten you're, you survive this well exactly. nine out of ten is still beyond a real that's right Well, the defense argue at trial that all the evidence was inconclusive and with Glenna showing zero motive to kill Marty. After two days of deliberation, the jury finds Glenna guilty of premeditated murder and is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Glenna spoke in a phone interview about a reaction to the verdict.
2: It's gut-wrenching. I was mad. I was hurt, confused. I was stunned. I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I've loved Marty since I was young, and I, w- I would never have hurt Marty. I would have never hurt him.
3: You know, I, I feel her pain here. this I, I feel her pain because to me, this just doesn't seem right. And for the Durham family, they describe it as a huge burden off their shoulders. Well... You know, for supporters of Glenna, the debate about what actually happened here isn't over. Marty's cousin Scott still believes Glenna is innocent and that Marty's real killer is still out there somewhere. And let me just say, this is Marty's best friend saying this. This is his brother. No one has a motive for justice, uh, unlike Scott, you know? So for him to kind of say this, I think, is taking the actual evidence into this case. Mm
2: -hmm. Glenna
3: and her lawyer filed a request for a new trial, but were unfortunately denied. You know i don't know john this doesn't seem right to me this doesn't seem possible and regardless of the parrot take the parrot out of it take Bud out of it yeah how could this really be possible that she definitively killed him
0: yeah and you know there was even a part of me about the parrot just to go back to it as crazy as it is you know i was like how like first of all, parrots are aliens. Let's get that out of the way. Um, parrots are aliens. They're from I think outer that's space. A
3: that's a fact. Yeah.
0: The fact that they can speak is from outer space. Um, but secondly, to and to be serious about this, you know, can you train a parrot to say things? How long had that parrot been away from the crime scene? Like how much time was it between Christina's recording and when the alleged shooting happened? Because I just look at this, and this is not alleging or, or or anything towards anyone, but I just look at it from an investigative uh, standpoint where just because a parrot is reciting something like that does not mean the parrot was there and um, can simply give eyewitness testimony. I mean, I know they were kind of treating it that way. But, you know, little things like that, and then you add up the money that's in the safe and... And even some of the way some of the people were being questioned. And the kids not
3: being honest about taking the money. Like, just say. Well, that's a great point, too. The money could probably even go to you because you're their, you know, you're at least Marty's kid.
0: So, I mean, to me, it just
3: doesn't seem right. And taking them right.
0: And when they took the money had to have happened before. They closed off the crime scene. And isn't that witness tampering? I mean, I, I'm i sorry, evidence tampering. I'm not sure. I'm not a professional. I'm just a true crime podcaster. By the way, nobody connected to the family had ever been charged or convicted or even persons of interest. So, yeah. you know, we have to keep that on mind. Nobody, nobody is guilty. Nobody is even being questioned. But... No, but I am
3: questioning Glenna's guilt here. I'm questioning that. I'm not accusing anyone. I just, there doesn't seem enough evidence for me in this case to convict, especially without the possibility of parole.
0: Well, my thing is, I would love to hear what Glenna thinks happened because, and it's too bad. I mean, she's now in prison, but hopefully one day we can maybe hear her side of the story because it does seem like she would know very specifically, even though she did say she has amnesia, she would know hopefully or remember people that may be connected to her that could lead them into a direction of of maybe potential true justice if justice wasn't served.
3: I agree. this is a tragic story it really with is. this really tragic ending. Um, the story of betrayal crossed family lines and ended in a heartbreaking way for so many involved. John, thank you so much for joining me on this week's Betrayal. Where can people find you and listen to you on social media? I feel like I know the answer to this, you do. but I'm going to let you take it, okay?
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on your show, Darren. And this has been so much fun to do this in a different format with you on your show. You guys, if you're interested, can find me on social media at J Thrasher on Twitter, on Instagram. And of course, you can listen to Darren and I talk about other cases like this on our other weekly true crime show, Shaken and Disturbed wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Well, thanks for everyone else out there for listening, and I'll catch you on another episode of Betrayal. For fan reactions and more, head over to crimefeed.com slash podcasts. And for more true crime TV like this, be sure to download the Discovery
1: Plus app today. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too.